0: When you think about fortune telling with cards, you probably think about tarot cards or possibly even oracle cards, but did you know that you can actually tell fortunes with playing cards as well? In this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore, we're going to look at fortune telling with playing cards and we're also going to have a look at their folklore as well. So let's get cracking! Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Cedric, blogger, fantasy author, and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Why hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. We are sadly at the end of fortune-telling month, so this is basically going to be the final episode in this theme before we move on to April and all things spring-like. So this month we've looked at Fortuna, basically the goddess of fortune-telling. We've looked at the folklore of tarot cards. We've looked at weird types of divination. And this week we're going to have a look at the folklore and also fortune telling with ordinary commoner garden playing cards. And to be honest, you probably own at least one deck of playing cards. And if you're anything like me, you literally only know how to play one game with them, which is probably solitaire. If you're really lucky, you might also know how to play free sell as well. But have you ever considered using them to tell fortunes? Because cartomancy, which is basically divination with cards, doesn't just rely on fancy decks of special cards. Now, obviously true, Madame Lenormand became famous for her divinatory cards during the Napoleonic era, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the tarot cards date back to around the 15th century, although their occult meanings basically date to the mid-18th century. Modern diviners, as well as these two systems, also have Oracle cards, Angel cards, and in all probability, Cards Against Humanity as well. But we're going to focus on ordinary playing cards. So first of all, where do they actually even come from? And basically, nobody actually knows. Some people's best guess is the East, because scrolls dating to the Tang Dynasty era in China discuss paper tiles, although they're more likely to be what we now call dominoes. Instead, European documents from the late 14th century describe a game which they imply came from Arabia, not China. And also Jonathan D notes that Europeans knew were playing cards in 1377. I would be more inclined to go along with that because of the fact that we know that there were bans on playing cards in the 1370s, which obviously you can't ban something that you're not aware of. And in fact, playing cards became so popular in medieval Europe that card games were actually banned on work days in Paris. And cards were then known as the Devil's Picture Book, which is often a title which is now ascribed to tarot cards instead. Now, the familiar black and red suits that we're familiar with now appeared in France in the mid 1400s. And while the cards had always had symbols and images, the pips were a new development and it does make them easier to read and numbers were finally added to the corners of the cards during the Civil War, which meant that people could hold a fan of their cards in one hand and still see what all of the cards were. And there's this thing that always fascinates me that you can have completely good intentions about what something is supposed to be used for and you then give it to the ordinary member of the public and they will find a completely different meaning for it that you had no way of anticipating. And basically the same thing happened with playing cards. So in 1685, the first deck of cards that were for divination only appeared in London, which I'm sure wasn't really what anybody intended them for when they were first developed. And in 1770... Jean-Baptiste Alliette published his system, which showed readers how to use playing cards for divination. And Corey Thomas Hutchison notes that in the late 1700s, playing cards actually had biblical associations. Now, obviously, fives would relate to Christ's five wounds. The tens were the Ten Commandments. But obviously, these meanings change over time. The kings represented actual kings, like Caesar and Alexander the Great, and the queens are basically less well known and Spain actually swapped the queens for mounted knights and the Germans ditched them all together. That being said, the French reintroduced the queen back into the deck and the British were so fond of theirs that they actually had this thing called the British rule. Which meant that if we had a queen on the throne, we had a female monarch, the queens were worth more than the king in the deck and obviously vice versa if we had a king on the throne, which I think is quite cool. Now, the Joker or Jester is the wild card in the deck, and quite frankly, they're probably what most people would associate with playing cards, particularly in the wake of the Batman films. And the Joker cards first appeared in American decks in 1867 and British decks in 1880, so they're basically the newest arrival to what we now consider the standard playing card. And while they can trump normal cards, they often don't perform a standard function. And as a result, there's no standard design for them. So you see some really cool designs for them because obviously it's kind of, well, the gloves are off, pal. I can do whatever I want with this design, which is quite interesting. Now, playing cards don't necessarily have the same associations as tarot cards. And Jonathan D points out that if you think about it, tarot cards would have been probably quite hard to come by. Whereas an ordinary everyday deck of cards was a much more accessible tool for foretelling the future because most people would probably have a deck of cards or they would at least have access to one. There is also the fact that obviously from like the, the 1800s onwards, tarot cards had particular associations to the extent that obviously until the the Witchcraft Act was repealed in the 50s in the UK, it was basically a no-no to even own a set of tarot cards, but nobody would raise an eyebrow at you holding a deck of playing cards. So it's the kind of thing you'd be able to travel around, do whatever you want, whip out a deck of playing cards, and people wouldn't really think sort of too much about it. And the four suits basically parallel the four suits in the tarot's minor arcana, because obviously that's where the tarot got them from. And often the, the hearts become the equivalent of the tarot's cups, and they're all about water and emotions and things of that nature. The spades then become equated to swords, and in both decks, they basically mean things related to like the intellect and ideas and communication. The tarot's coins or pentacles, depending on the deck, became diamonds, and they're all about like material concerns and business and finance and things like that. And then the clubs become the equivalent of the staffs or ones in the tarot. And they're often to do with things like creativity and passion and stuff like that. Obviously, you do get differences that crop up between countries. So, for example, you don't often find spades in Germany and they're replaced with bells instead. But whatever the cards featured, different systems basically cropped up as to how to read them. And the suit and the number of the card would carry messages. And then obviously, much as in tarot, the reader would interpret these messages for the querent. So, for example, if you got the six of hearts, that might suggest that a wave of luck was coming your way or that you were going to meet some new kind of love interest. Or if you drew the six of clubs, that was considered a lucky card and it was predicting financial fortune and success. But then if you've got the four of spades, that might indicate that you're experiencing sort of smaller difficulties like financial problems or other worries. So obviously that is where it then sort of ties into things like the, the idea of like sort of thoughts weighing heavy on you that you would get in the swords in tarot. But either way, obviously, as I say, somebody would then read the card and they would then tell you what it meant and pass on the message. I can't necessarily tell you what all of the cards mean, and quite frankly, I think you'd probably find it quite dull if I did. But it's just the fact that there are that many different systems. I mean, you can buy books on on fortune telling with playing cards on Amazon, and it's basically up to you to choose a system and then just stick with it. Unlike tarot, where while yes, there are some differences between decks, largely speaking, if I draw the nine of pentacles, it sort of means the same in every deck. So I would argue that, Tarot cards are probably easier, but then playing cards are also a lot cheaper. And you've also probably got some as well. But that's their use in fortune telling. Let's have a look at their folklore. And there are quite a few ghost stories that basically involve people playing cards with the devil. They probably don't necessarily realise that they're playing cards with the devil, just to you know point that one out. But he largely tricks them into playing on the Sabbath so he can steal their souls. And even the mighty Glom's castle in Scotland boasts such a story. And I remember hearing this when I went up there and I went on the tour, that there was supposed to be a hidden room, that if you look on the outside of the castle and you count the windows, there's more windows than there are like, from the outside than you can actually find on the inside. And it's believed that one of these windows, why like people don't know why the room is that goes with it, is where apparently this guy was playing cards with the devil on the Sabbath. And to be honest with you, I do think that these ghost stories are probably a lot less about the cards and they're more about gambling in general. And as you can imagine, something like that does basically end up with a whole bunch of superstitions about them. And Coraline Daniels and Sam Stevens basically collected a whole load of them together, which I will relate here. So if you're holding a hand that contains the four of clubs, that is never going to bring you good luck because it's known as the Devil's Four Post Bedstead. Though that being said, the two of clubs apparently is lucky. It's bad luck to play cards while you're sitting in a rocking chair and it's also unlucky to play at a table with no tablecloth. So just bear that in mind next time you go to a casino and you go, hang on a minute, they don't have tablecloths. Although apparently it is lucky to play cards with a hat on or if you stroke a black cat's tail seven times before you sit down to play. If you find yourself holding three aces, it means you're going to move house soon. And if you get a long line of black cards, that's a death omen, which is obviously worth bearing in mind. And you'll also attract bad luck if you lose your temper while playing cards, because apparently the devil likes passionate players. Well, obviously. Although it is quite interesting that even though you've got all these bad luck associations with playing cards, it may well be that the presence of arsenic in the 19th century cards might help to explain them. And there's actually an entire article in the British Medical Journal from 1879 which talks about the dangers of poisoning by the use of arsenic in playing cards. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know how many players are sitting there licking their cards, but, you know, you could always, I suppose, possibly absorb it through the skin if it's in the ink. But it is quite amusing how many times you look at things from the 19th century and arsenic is to blame for peculiar things that have happened particularly things like hallucinations but the thing we're going to move on to next is the ace of spades so a very specific card and when I've said that you've potentially just got the motorhead song stuck in your head so I apologize for that but as well as being a hard rock classic the ace of spades is a really important card in the deck and in English speaking countries it's usually the highest value card and that's actually a literal thing because the card was hand-stamped to show that the stamp duty had been paid by the printer. But the Ace of Spades is also known as the Death Card, and Coral and Daniels and C.M. Stevens note that if you find one on the ground, that's bad luck, and if the spade is pointing at you, it's an omen that deceit and treachery are afoot, so just bear that one in mind. I did find one website that actually published a claim that the Ace of Spades represents Yule in the calendar, or the death of the year, and the author also then went on to explain that the symbol seemed to recur throughout the Vietnam War and it was painted on vehicles or turned into patches and this folk legend basically claimed that the symbol was there to spur on US troops. There is no common consensus and the association does seem a relatively recent one but I just thought it was worth including anyway. Personally I find it a little bit difficult to believe that the of the spades would represent Yule because there's 52 cards in a deck which implies each card might represent a week in the year, but just one particular day, that's a little bit unlikely. But finally, I've basically saved the best for last. And I couldn't write a post about playing cards and not talk about the mythical dead man's hand. Now, people don't agree on what cards actually comprise the dead man's hand. So it's usually considered to be the aces and eights of spades and clubs. The fifth card doesn't really matter. And according to popular legend, Wild Bill Hickok was holding the dead man's hand when he was shot in the back in Deadwood in 1876. And I'm going to put a little bit of a cheeky plug here, but it did inspire my short collection of connected tales called Dead Man's Hand, which you can get from my website and I will put a link below if you are interested in reading those three short connected stories. So if you like sort of westerns and ghost stories, then give Dead Man's Hand a go. The phrase itself dates to 1886, and at which point it was actually considered to be a pair of 10s and three jacks. And as I say, other sets of cards appear in different versions. But basically, the, the hand that Hickok held didn't actually appear until a 1926 book about the gunslinger that came out. So you have to wonder, how did anyone know what hand he actually had? And if he was shot in 1876, and the book then comes out in 1926, that's a bit of a gap in time. So just bear in mind that if at any point you do find yourself holding uh, a hand of cards and it's got the aces and the eights of spades and clubs or it's got a pair of tens and three jacks, just keep an eye out for what's going on around you. But it is quite an interesting one because of the fact that the dead man's hand seems to have appeared in folklore because of its usage in popular culture, rather than the other way around. So it's almost a little bit like the sin eater in a way, where it's kind of it's something that popular culture has just taken and run with, and then that's informed the folklore rather than the folklore informing the popular culture. This is one of the things I love about folklore when it does that. So basically, playing cards all boil down to luck. Certain cards are lucky and other ones aren't, and a lot of the time, there's not even any logical or rational explanation as to why that might be, but let's be honest, when you live in a world like the one we do, it's hardly surprising that people would turn to fortune telling to try and make sense of an unpredictable world, and you know, playing cards are as good a tool as any. That's the end of this week's episode, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned a bit more about playing cards. As I say, you can click on the link in the show notes to sign up for that free Three sort of story collection that I did, Dead Man's Hand, which is set in my sort of like the the same universe that my Wessons are. And yes, I know it's weird. Somebody living in North East England who's a woman writing Wessons, but you know, you know me. I don't like to do anything the, the easy or obvious way. We are, as I say, we are going to move on to things related to spring and so on next month. So hopefully you'll enjoy that as well. If you do have any requests, please do email me, tweet me, message me on Instagram, new smoke signals, whatever you want. And I'll see about popping those in as well, because I always like making sure that I'm covering content that you actually really, really want. I have also been putting up the exclusive Patreon episodes, so I'm, I believe that we have four of those now. So if you do support me on Patreon at the $4 a month price point, you do get an extra bonus episode. They are slightly more supernatural and ghostly in content, but hopefully you'll enjoy them anyway. So we have looked at things like spiritualism and an Italian folktale about a ghost named Atarina And we've also done like a Ghost Hunting 101 episode as well. So there's all that kind of stuff, which you can then go back and listen to if you sign up at the $4 a month price point. Anyway, I will let you go now because obviously that is quite a long episode. And I will see you next month when we jump into April. Cheerio.